Let's bow and pray together before we open God's word. Father in heaven, we come before you today grateful for the confidence that we can have in Christ. Though there's not one of us here today who is sinless, there's not one of us here who hasn't transgressed your law and rebelled against you. Those who are covered in the blood of Christ, those who are represented today by Jesus, can approach you confidently and boldly. Despite what the enemy says about us, despite what our own conscience and our own heart may say in condemning us, we know that we can have confidence because Jesus died. He atoned for our sin. He rose again and he stands today pleading our cause. Lord, if we didn't have that confidence, I could not stand here today and address you. I could not stand here and preach your word. We could not stand here today and worship you. We could not fellowship and enjoy in one another's company if there was still the reality of divine judgment hanging over our heads. But we can do all those things today because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done. So we offer you worship and thanks And we ask that you would continue, Lord Jesus, to minister to us. As you have justified us, we ask that you would now continue to sanctify us by your spirit and through your word. So we pray for this in faith and with gratitude. Amen. Please open your Bibles once again to Exodus chapter 21. So we continue working through the book of the covenant following the Ten Commandments today. There is a universal reality, an inescapable reality of life. It's one that we've sung about today. It's a universal truth that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. This is a basic truth. It's a practical truth. You reap what you sow. Spit in the wind, see what happens. There's certain personal, relational, social costs that come along with our sin. Many of us have experienced that to various degrees. But this truth that sin has consequences is more than just a natural, physical, practical thing. It's also a deeply spiritual truth that those who rebel against God fall under his judgment. Perhaps not immediately, but eventually. There is eternal judgment for sin. The fact that sin does indeed have consequences, this truth was one of the first truths that Satan attacked back in the garden. Do you remember what he said? He said, you will not surely die. He said, there's not really consequences for sin. The fact that this was one of the first truths attacked by the great liar, the deceiver, our enemy, it ought to show us how important this truth is. The, the, the importance of sin and consequences, the understanding this is not just necessary for healthy relationships, for a society to function. Understanding this truth is essential to grasping the necessity of the gospel itself. Understanding the good news that Jesus comes to deal with the consequences for your sin, my sin. That's why this is one of the first truths that godly parents will teach their children, that sin has consequences. Even before our kids can speak English, they learn what the word no means, and they can learn that there are consequences if you disobey mom and dad, 
dealing out necessary punishment for our children is good for them. It's actually an expression of love because it teaches them about the consequences of sin. This universal truth, this inescapable reality, they may get away with murder in your house, but they will not in the real world, and they will not get away with it in God's court of eternal judgment. So teaching our children this doesn't just maintain a peaceful and safe home in which relationships flourish, necessary boundaries are maintained for the good of all involved. It actually lays a necessary foundation for our kids for the good news of the gospel. So we could go on and on about why this truth is important. It's important for people and families and societies, which brings us to the Old Testament and this exact moment in history. There was a family here, Abraham's family, and this family had gotten pretty big. Uh, they numbered only 70 when they went down to Egypt. But now, here at Mount Sinai, after being delivered from slavery in Egypt, there's perhaps 2 million people that are gathered. And what God is doing here in this portion of Scripture is giving his family, his children, some house rules, laying out for them the expectations as they prepared to leave for the promised land where there was going to be a new society, this covenant community that was submitted to the rule of God, their Savior. God had given them ten rules, ten commandments, but now he is specifying for them in the verses that follow the ten commandments what would be the consequences for violating these commandments. What would be the penalties for their sin? These consequences were meant to deter harmful behavior. They're meant to maintain a safe and just society so that the people of God could flourish. But they also were meant to teach valuable lessons about the justice of God and to lay a foundation for the coming of Jesus and the gospel of grace. So that brings us to our text, Exodus chapter 21. We'll be walking through verses 12 through 32 this morning. God's already given them instructions regarding altars and worship. That's at the end of chapter 20. We saw last week in, in a somewhat difficult text, God's regulations for slavery, verses 1 through 11. And next, God begins to speak to Moses about a new topic, crimes against persons. That's sort of the, the unifying theme that, that groups together all these various laws we'll look at this morning, crimes that, com that are committed against people. This, so this is not about crimes involving mere property. There will be laws involving property, theft and damage and loss and things like that. That'll be next week. But our, the laws we'll look at today have to do with physical harm that is done to people. So these verses don't deal with every possible situation that Israel may have had to deal with. But it does give us some examples that provide direction on how to apply God's law in this day and age in a just Manner. So I'd like to walk through these laws together and briefly look at three aspects of divine justice that tell us something about the consequences for sin. The first is what we find in verses 12 through 17, and this has to do with capital crimes, capital crimes. And what we learn here is that justice, true justice, God's justice, involves consequences for devaluing human life. Justice involves consequences for devaluing human life. Verse 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, 
You shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. What binds all of these verses together right here, verses 12 through 17, is the death penalty. And there's three types of crimes that are specified. There's murder, there's violence against parents, and there's what's often been called man-stealing or kidnapping for the purpose of selling someone into slavery. And all three of these types of crimes require the death penalty. And we briefly touched on this when we were working through the Ten Commandments with the prohibition against murder. Someone may ask, how does taking a human life uphold the value of human life? Some people may say, what good does it do to execute a criminal? You're not going to bring your loved one back from the dead. And that's true. You can't bring a victim back from the dead. That's not the point. That's not the goal. The goal in rendering the death penalty for these crimes is to uphold the value of human life life, to make sure it is not minimized, and to deter others from following suit. Consider the nature of these crimes. It's against people. It affects a human life. It's interesting, there is no death penalty in the Mosaic law for crimes involving property. They didn't hang horse thieves. The capital punishment was reserved for crimes that specifically destroyed and devalued human life. Notice that verses 12 through 14 deals with premeditated murder. This law actually finds its roots long before the Ten Commandments. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. God had specified there that neither man nor beast was to be spared if they took a human life. And the reason for that is because man is made in the image of God. This places incomparable value on every human life. And that's why the sixth commandment specifies you shall not murder. We don't have the authority to take someone's life simply because we want to or because we think it necessary or expedient. Only if God authorizes, and he's authorizing it here, if someone commits premeditated murder, first-degree murder, God says they are to be put to death. Anything short of death for premeditated murder would have devalued the life of the victim. It's interesting, Numbers 35 says that you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You see, there's certain things that can't be replaced. You can't put a price tag on a human life. So if they were to do so, if they were to impose some sort of fine, even the heaviest of fines, it would have been an insult. Human life is valuable. The life of the least, the life of the greatest. The life of your enemy, the life of your friend. Even your own life, we don't have the liberty to take life. It has infinite value because it it reflects the image of God who is infinitely glorious. So to destroy human life is really a crime not only against a person, but it's to attempt violence against God himself because we attack the image of God. And God takes that personally. To strike against a man seeking to kill him is to strike against God. Not only that, murder usurps the sovereign authority of the only one who is the author and giver of life, who alone possesses the right and the authority to determine when life should end. So God commands faithful Israelites to dish out the death penalty for intentional premeditated 
murder. He says in verse 14, they are to be taken from my altar. That little phrase may sound, may sound foreign to our ears, but what often would have happened in those days, it was a superstitious practice, um, something that even the surrounding nations did, is that someone, if they know they're about to receive some sort of drastic penalty like this, they would have fled to where the altar was and grabbed onto the corners. And the reason they did that was to somehow indicate that if they could grab on the alt- to the altar... And whatever God that was didn't kill them instantly, then it means that they must be innocent or they must not be deserving of death. Or perhaps they thought that if I grab onto this altar that any God-fearing men, they won't dare to come into this holy place to kill me because they fear God. But what God tells people in verse 14 is he says, take them from my altar. Take them from my altar that he may die. God says, listen, he'll get no protection from me. I am not on his side even if they're holding on to my altar. So don't be afraid to come and get them and do exactly what I'm telling you to do, put them to death. But notice there's a careful clarification here in verse 13. Verse 13 tells us, if he did not lie in wait for him, so this is not premeditated, but God let him fall into his hand. So, so someone killed a man, but it, it happened. Maybe it's self-defense, maybe it was unintentional. Who knows how it happened? It says, then I will appoint a place for you, a place to which he may flee. What God is telling his people here is that accidental death is not punishable by the death penalty in every case. What God is teaching his people is that, yes, human life is valuable, but intent matters. Motive matters. Premeditation matters. In such cases, there's an option to flee to a sanctuary city. We see this specified later in Deuteronomy that maybe someone is cutting down a tree and the axe head flies off and kills someone. Well, that person was allowed to flee to one of these six cities that God would specify. They could live out the rest of their days in that sanctuary city. Now, this, this is important for us to understand because we may feel like the death penalty is pretty drastic because that's something that's rare in our society. But this... This instruction that God is given, giving here involving this death penalty actually would have restrained how often this death penalty was dished out. The norms of that day were that there was something called uh, the, the blood avenger. If someone killed someone in your family, then it was up to you to go out and seek retribution, to retaliate and take their life. But often what would happen, as you can imagine, is that angry and aggrieved family members would not differentiate between intent, would not differentiate between premeditated murder and self-defense. You killed one of mine, then I'm going to kill you or one of yours. And this is how these family feuds would escalate. It would be a back and forth, and the body count would pile up. So it was not a good process that upheld justice. It became simply a vehicle for personal revenge. And God is telling his people that they are to be different. They deal with first-degree murder differently than accidental death, differently than an unfortunate escalation of a situation, differently than self-defense. So God is raising the bar in terms of you must put people to death for murder, but he's also restraining vengeance by specifying a difference here between motive and intent. But the bottom line is that the death penalty is required for premeditated murder, and this upholds the value of human life. But it's not the only thing that requires the death penalty. Verses 15 and 17 specify that the death penalty was also to be rendered for violence against parents. 
whether it be verbal or physical, whether they're striking their parents or cursing their parents, such sin is a blatant violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And this sin has consequences. The word for cursing that we find here in verse uh, 17 and the word for strike in verse 15 We need to understand what they mean. Cursing here is more than just a rash word. It's more than just somebody saying something disrespectful and unkind. It was a renouncing of your parents, wishing that they were dead, a a complete repudiation of them, which would have included refusing to honor any obligation. I wish you would die. I won't take care of you in your old age. And this was to be punishable by death. Striking here refers to more than just a three-year-old that flails and thrashes when his mom picks him up and says, no, no, stop doing that. The word for strike here is a term that can refer to deadly force. This is an attack, an assault on parents. So even if it doesn't result in death, God says that such an attack of violence against your parents warrants the death penalty. You might say, why? Why? Are these two sins, which don't result in death necessarily, why are they punishable by death? Once again, this is a crime against a human being that reflects the image of God. It's a crime against God's sovereign assignment of authority and obligation. And such a wicked treatment of the ones who gave you life, the ones who raised you, it deserved death. The person who would do something like this, that would repudiate their parents and assault and strike their parents, the person who would do that will do almost anything. They'd be a menace that must be purged from society. And ultimately, their crime is so repugnant because it's against God. The image of God that's reflected in the authority of parents. There's a third crime that deserves the death penalty, verse 16. Verse 16 refers to the slave trade. Those who kidnap, steal, sell, transport, buy, human beings, treating them like property. This dealt with a violation of the eighth commandment, which says you shall not steal. And what God says is that both the kidnapper and the buyer and even the middleman were all considered guilty of participating in a crime that is worthy of death. This would have outlawed and eradicated any sort of slave trade. Remember, as we talked about last week, those who went into slavery did so voluntarily. It was a way to get out of debt. It was a way to escape poverty. It was not something that was inflicted upon them. So kidnappers, traffickers, and those who buy people like property, that is something that God refused to tolerate in his covenant community. They were to be put to death, and the nation was to be cleansed from that kind of repulsive wickedness. And again, this is because of the value of human life. It's because these people bear the image of God. So this kind of sin is far, far worse than stealing or damaging mere property. It damages people. Sins like these destroy families. Sins like these rob people of their life, their future, their strength, their opportunity. But even worse than being a crime against persons, it's a crime against God whose image they bear. It is violence against God's glory. It is a rebellion against God's authority. It is an attack on God's goodness. And divine justice, God's justice, upholds the value of human life because it bears the image of God. So this first section, verses 12 through 17, deals with these capital crimes showing us that justice 
upholds the value of human life, which means there are serious consequences for this kind of sin. The consequence for these sins, sins of this magnitude, is death. It's death. Sin has consequences. But there's other sins that don't necessarily require the death penalty. And we see those in verses 18 through 27. The first chunk dealt with capital crimes. This second collection of laws in verses 18 through 27 deals with laws that inflict personal injury. Laws that deal with personal injury. And the point that it shows us is this. Justice involves this idea of retribution and restitution. Retribution and restitution. Justice involves both. See, you see, death is not always the immediate necessary solution to punishing crime. There are other situations in which justice does need to be done, but it looks different. It looks different. Sometimes what's necessary is retribution and or restitution. What do these two words mean? Retribution has the idea of punishment being dealt out that fits the exact measure of the crime. It's a punishment that seeks to even the score. So this is something that falls upon the one who is guilty, the guilty party, to make things right. Restitution has the idea of making things right for the victim, repaying what was lost or taken or damaged, somehow honoring and restoring, uh, acknowledging what had been done against them. So retribution deals with the, the guilty party, restitution, deals with the victim. And we see both of these in various situations. Verses 18 and 19 deals with fights. Uh, when, when two guys get in a fight, we see this in verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, so this is not murder, this is not death, it's a lesser degree of violence. Verse 19 says, Then... If the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, so he recovers, he who struck him shall be clear. So he's not guilty of the death penalty. He doesn't have to flee and run to a sanctuary city because the man is alive. But the end of the verse tells us, he shall pay for his loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. It's interesting. Guys who are smaller or weaker Um, have an incentive to avoid violence. What's the incentive? We don't want to get beat down. (laughs) Small guys learn to talk their way out of situations. You You don't resort to violence if you're wise because you know that you're going to pay for it. But what is there to keep those who are big, those who are strong, those who are larger and tougher than anybody else, what's to keep them from resulting or resorting to violence? What would deter them? What would inspire someone who's bigger than everybody else to solve problems without resorting, without coming to blows? Well, first of all, as we saw, if things get out of hand and you kill someone, you could either lose your own life or you could lose everything you have and have to live in a different city as a fugitive, which is a very undesirable outcome. You would have been far from family. You could not own property in another city like this because it wasn't part of your tribe's inheritance. So you would have lost everything. If you injure the man and don't kill him, then what this text says is you have to pay for both his workers' comp and his medical bills. It says you should pay for his loss and see that he is thoroughly healed. Workers' comp and any lost, you know, lost wages and any medical bills that there may be. So this would have been a motive for the strong to not turn to violence to solve their arguments, solve their problems. 
because there would be consequences for injury that was done to a person. So the one guilty of causing harm, in this case, has to make restitution. He has to make restitution. That's what justice required when there's violence done to another person. So that's dealing with fights. Uh, What about when a master harms a slave? We see this in verses 20 and 21 and verses 26 and 27. Look in verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. So there's, again, the death penalty for murder. And for unintentional death, there is fleeing to a sanctuary city. So we already have instructions for what to do in death. And this verse says that applies to slaves. Slaves are just as much protected under the law as anyone else. But what happens if it's not fatal violence? Verse 21 tells us, if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged. So there's no death penalty. For the slave is his money. What does this mean? Well, if a master kills a slave, we already know how to deal with that. He's liable to the death penalty or he has to flee to a sanctuary city, depending on on the intent and the motive. Slaves had equal protection under the law. But what about non-lethal violence? Well, before we even get into this, we have to step back for a minute and ask. You may be wondering, why would violence like this even be necessary or tolerated? Why would this even happen? Sure, there could be situations where masters demonstrate sheer cruelty towards their servants. A a wicked master may beat a slave out of anger. That's obviously wrong, and there's protections here to keep that from happening. But is there ever appropriate um, physical punishment for slaves? Well, think about this. Imagine a situation in which a slave, a servant, was stealing from his master, or perhaps where he's threatening or even harming other slaves, or some other destructive behavior. Physical punishment could be necessary in such a situation. Remember, they couldn't just find the slave. He's likely a slave because he's already in debt to his master. So piling on more would would not have solved anything. He has a six-year term that he's supposed to serve, and at that point, his debt is paid off. He's already financially indebted. So you couldn't just add more fines. So it's feasible that a master could administer physical punishment. That's why this might be happening. And in cases where that happened, when you're administering physical punishment, there could be unintentional injury. That's why this law is here, to deal with situations where injury happens. So however uncomfortable this may make you to think about a slave receiving physical punishment, consider the purpose of this law. The purpose of this law is here to protect the slave. It's to protect the slave. Consider this, that cruel masters obviously care more about money than they care about people. So this law is meant to hit them where it hurts the most. It's meant to hit them in their pocketbooks. If the master injures a slave, then the master bears the financial burden of not only providing room and board for the slave, but he also has to foot the bill for his medical treatment. That's what it means when it says the slave is his money. It means he's on the hook to to pay for whatever damages may happen. The slave doesn't have to take care of it. The master does. Not only does he have to pay out of his pocket to make it right, but the master also misses out on any potential productivity during that time span. If you hurt one of your workers, then he's not helping you make money. He's not helping you get the job done. So in situations like this, what 
What God is telling Moses is that this is the penalty for the master. There's no additional punishment that was needed. However, if the master causes permanent injury to a slave, it's a different situation. Look in verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, equal protection here, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In these situations where permanent damage is done, that slave, no matter his crime, is instantly granted his freedom. Because the master has done permanent injury to this person, he forfeits at that moment any claim to authority. He forfeits any financial obligation that may be there. He forfeits any opportunity to profit from that servant's ongoing labors. If a master hurt his slave, he's really hurting himself, hurting his own bottom line. If he does something that causes harm, he deserves to lose. And the slave deserves either care or the opportunity to go free, depending on the damage done. So once again, we can get lost in the weeds here, but the point that this is making is that this is the principle of restitution. The justice requires making things right for the victim. And that the one who committed the crime, the violent master, is obligated, obligated. So this is here to protect the rights of slaves. There's a third situation that has to deal with personal harm. And this is in verse 22 through 25. And this has to do with harm that is done to a pregnant woman and an unborn child or unborn children. Look in verse 22. And this, again, kind of goes back to the situation where you have two men fighting. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. And this speaks to maybe she has twins or referring to whether it's a male or a female. The law placed just as much value on daughters as it did sons, even though often in that day cultures valued sons because it passed on the family, the family name. But here the law protects both. If a woman is hit so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We imagine a scenario here in which two men are fighting and they crash into a pregnant woman. Or perhaps a pregnant woman is fearful for her husband because he's on the losing end of a battle. Maybe she steps in and tries to help and she gets hurt in the process. Well, if something like this results in premature childbirth, the woman is struck and it causes her to give birth, well, this is something that is considered a crime by the offending party. In a situation like this, the one who harms her, the one who strikes her, is held responsible. And he has to, at the very least, pay a fine. Even if she ends up being okay and the baby ends up being okay, he still has to pay a fine. And that fine, the amount of it, is determined by her husband and it is approved by the judge. So he's accountable. Now, if the child or the mother dies, if the child or the mother experience injury, permanent injury to any degree... This man is also held responsible. And what we see here is that the punishment he faces is supposed to be equal to the damage caused. This is the idea of retribution and restitution, that justice 
requires it. This is the famous principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's quoted often. Even if you maybe haven't read the Bible, you've probably heard that language. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What does this mean? It may seem a little bit barbaric or even savage to our ears to think about inflicting punishment in equal measure to what was suffered by the victim. But there's a few things we need to know about this statement in Scripture. First of all, this. This statement of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, even life for life, it's setting a maximum penalty, not a minimum. It's setting a maximum penalty. If someone knocks out the tooth of a woman, he's not to be put to death. That would be, that would be too much. Now, I may want to kill someone who harms my wife. I mean, if someone touches her, I don't care how bad it hurt, he needs to die. That's how my mind works. That, that's the instinct of husbands. But that's not justice. It's not justice. It's revenge. And God's law requires justice. And retribution must be equal in kind to the damage that is done. So this, this law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's putting a ceiling on punishment. It's establishing the maximum, not necessarily a minimum. So it's here not to authorize revenge, but to make sure things don't escalate too far. Secondly, um, it appears that financial compensation was also allowable for anything short of capital offenses. There's language of payment here. He shall pay. And, and we see throughout the rest of the law that there are financial amounts that are often connected to crimes. There's language of payment for anything short of capital offenses. Remember, Deuteronomy says, you shall not accept a ransom for premeditated murder. But the implication is that anything less than that, you may accept a ransom for. So this doesn't always mean you have to knock out somebody's tooth or break their leg if they cause that harm to someone else. Financial restitution was also an option. A third point we need to understand regarding this, this uh, principle that this was given to be guidance for a judge. It's not giving license for personal revenge. It was the judge who was supposed to render the verdict. This doesn't mean that any vigilante, any angry brother or father or son was allowed to go out and take justice into his own hands. This was given as guidance for judges. And this fact is seen in Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye. In a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting this passage. But I say to you, and then what does Jesus tell us? He gives instruction about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, this, this language of mercy. What is Jesus doing? Is he condemning the law, repudiating the law? No, not at all. He's saying, listen, this is meant to give guidance for judges, but you as a private citizen, as someone who has received God's mercy, you're supposed to look for opportunities to show mercy. You're not to use this judicial precedent, precedent as an excuse for you to go out and get personal revenge, for you to go out and take your pound of flesh because it's your right. That's not how citizens in my kingdom are to think and act and live. And we'll talk more about that later. But keep in mind that this is put here to be guidance for a judge. It's not giving license to people to go out and get revenge. So that's what's meant by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it comes to us in this passage that's meant to protect women and unborn children. That's the context for it. And what that shows us, which is so appropriate for today, is that God views the baby in the womb as fully human. 
having equal protection under the law, the same as any adult, whether male or female, whether fully abled or having some disability. It doesn't matter. This is a human being who bears the image of God and has equal protection under the law. What this means is that modern terms like reproductive justice, maybe you've heard that term before, reproductive justice is a euphemism for abortion. It's it's a euphemism for murder of an unborn human being. What that means is that a term like reproductive justice is pure fiction. It is a blatant contradiction. It is a wicked lie. There is nothing just about the killing of an innocent human being, especially those who are vulnerable as being unborn. God's justice, true justice, protects people like that. We see it right here in the law. And it says that someone who causes harm to a pregnant woman or her unborn child shall pay eye for eye, tooth for tooth, even life for life. This is biblical justice. And it shows us this principle, this principle of appropriate retribution and restitution, that the punishment must fit the crime. The punishment must fit the crime, no more, but also no less. This is biblical justice. No more and no less. Perfect restitution and retribution. What this means is that both excessive retaliation and excessive leniency are both distortions of justice. This is what God's law teaches us. So we've seen here that justice demands consequences when when, uh, a certain crime devalues human life, but also justice involves this principle of retribution and restitution. But there's a third thing we learn here in the final section of this passage, and this has to do with criminal negligence. Verses 28 through 36 show us that justice includes accountability for reckless or irresponsible behavior. It includes accountability for reckless and irresponsible behavior. Verse 28 through 36 deals with criminal negligence. Look in verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Unintentional death is always a tragedy. Always. And sadly, there are sometimes things that we just can't control. Things that we can't stop from happening, that we never could have stopped. But there are other things that we can control. There are other kinds of tragedy that could have been stopped. And this law here deals with both types of situations. And it uses the example of an ox, a bull, a large, male, aggressive animal that weighed a couple thousand pounds, had a bad attitude, and large horns. That can lead to potentially the loss of life. And these kind of animals would have been necessary in that society because they were used to pull a yoke and plow a field and farm. So this would have been... Um, a farm implement back in that day. So what do you do when an ox kills someone? 
Well, the law tells us if it's a first-time offense, if it was in no way anticipated um, by the owner, then the law says that there's protection for the owner. The owner is not to be put to death because it's not his fault. So he is not to be killed out of this desire for retribution. As much as someone may be angry, as much as they may want someone to pay, there's protection here for the owner. But there's still consequences for that owner. His ox would have been killed. Remember, Genesis 9 says that God requires the life of an animal who takes the life of a human being. That ox would have been killed, and it would have cost the owner considerably. This is really, really expensive. People today will take out a loan to buy a combine from John Deere. I could probably ask Garrett how much it costs. Half a million dollars, $750,000. They're expensive. To own an ox was a very pricey thing. To lose your ox would have been a steep penalty to pay. And so the ox was to be killed. This was a consequence for the owner. It would have cost him considerably. And it even says you're not to eat the oxen. You're not supposed to get any benefit out of the ox's death. So he gets no benefit there. But what if the owner knew that his animal had a history of aggression? What if he knew that this was likely to happen, yet he did nothing to stop it? He didn't warn anyone. He didn't fence it in. He didn't keep it tied up. Well, in that case, verse 29 tells us the owner is held responsible. He's held responsible because this was within his power to stop. And he didn't. This is criminal negligence. This is not a sin of commission, doing something he shouldn't have. It's a sin of omission. He didn't do what he should have done. And what it reveals is that that man cared little for the lives of others. This is the ultimate failure to love your neighbor. And in such cases, not only was the ox to be killed, but the owner's life was also forfeit. He was to be put to death. But it's interesting, there is an option. Verse 30 tells us there's an option for redemption. It's possible for a ransom to be paid where the owner of the ox could, presume, could potentially spare his life. This anticipates a situation in which the victim's family and the judge could show mercy. Even in the execution of justice, mercy is possible. Think about that. Mercy and justice coexisting together. The family or the judge didn't have to show this mercy, but they could. That's what mercy is. It's undeserved, and it's being spared from the punishment that could and should be poured out. If the victim's family and the judge approved a ransom payment, this would have allowed the grieving family to simultaneously hold the man accountable for his negligence, but, this, but at the same time extend him mercy, not requiring his death. It would require the owner of the ox to acknowledge that he had done something wrong. While he did not intentionally kill anyone, it was his criminal negligence that led to loss of life. So he had to publicly acknowledge through the payment of this ransom fee that his life was forfeit, that he was guilty. There's one final detail that's added here, and we'll just briefly comment on it so you can understand what it means. Verse 32 tells us what should happen in case the person killed was someone's slave. So this detail is given here, that in addition to the ransom, in addition to perhaps whatever punish, other punishments were required, the owner of the ox would also owe the master of this slave a payment. And this was meant to offset the financial loss of the master because that person was indebted to him and could now no longer repay that debt. 
The fact that they were to give this payment, I just want to make this clear. This is not meant to cheapen the life of a slave. That's not what's going on here. It's not meaning he's only worth 30 pieces of silver. This was meant to offset the loss of that owner, but also to keep that man from using this crisis as a way to get rich quick. Again, it's setting a ceiling, a maximum fine that could be paid. But the point of all of this, the point for showing how justice was to, be, was to be enforced in this day and age is to teach us that while mercy is held in high esteem and can fit beautifully with justice, justice does, re- does require something very important. It requires personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Whatever is within our control, we are expected to do. Reckless or irresponsible behavior that leads to harm should be punished. You may not own oxen, but consider things like unsafe work practices if you're an employer. Consider things like drunk driving or distracted driving if you have an automobile. We are held personally responsible for things that are within our control. And reckless or irresponsible behavior that harms someone else, justice requires retribution or restitution and God expects those in power to hold people accountable so this law if we sort of look at it as a whole it teaches us about punishment for crimes against persons all of these involve harm done to people and this law would have been a gracious gift to Israel again it feels like law this feels like a lot of maybe sort of dense and difficult you know legal language but consider this is a gift to Israel because this would have been for their good it would have served as a deterrent for their society providing strong motivation to avoid causing harm to others because you know you will not get away with it you will be made to pay it also offered protections for victims for those who are vulnerable, and even protections for those who are accused of crime, even for those who are guilty of certain crimes, because it taught them that retribution was to be thorough but not excessive. Friends, this is justice, and it's necessary for a good and healthy society in which people and families and society can, can flourish. And it taught them about the value of human life, the necessity of retribution, the importance of personal responsibility. This was for their good. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what it taught them and what it teaches us today is this very simple but important truth that we started with, that sin has consequences. If you take one thing away this morning, that's what you need to learn. Not what to do with your oxen, maybe that's confusing, But learn this very simple truth, that sin requires consequences. This this is a lesson that is always needed in every age. It's always needed because we're tempted to ignore it. It's easy for us to forget it. We want special treatment under the law. And we're tempted to be lenient or to maybe require excessive consequences upon others. But we need to consider the consequences for our own sins this morning. Because this reality ultimately exposes a great need for Christ. It exposes our need for mercy. I want you to consider this morning the truth of the cross, the truth of the gospel, in light of these things that we have been considering. The cross, consider this, is the means of God's mercy to us. And we need that mercy. All sin, all sin is ultimately against God. That's what makes it so awful. 
No matter whether or not your sin harms other people, no matter to what degree your sin harms other people, your sin ultimately is against God and demonstrates hostility towards him. And this is why all sin, from the least to the greatest, all sin is ultimately a capital offense. All of us deserve to die. Not just because of what we've done against other people, but because of our sin against God. Because justice requires punishment, doesn't it? And the punishment must fit the crime. So those who transgress God's law deserve to experience the reality of his wrath in an eternal hell. It's an eternal death sentence. Despite the lie of Satan, despite what he claimed in the garden, we will surely die. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. This is God speaking. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, a well-known passage, reminds us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty or the punishment for sin is death. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaks of a future judgment in which he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, the reality of hell is a difficult truth for many of us to swallow. But we need to understand this morning that God's judgment of sinners in hell is not excessive justice. Hell is not some divine overreaction. It is the only punishment that rightly acknowledges the value of God's glory, what it is that we have sinned against. Anything less than eternal death in hell would cheapen God's holiness. It would belittle his sovereign authority. It would wink at the heinousness of our sin, which is, as R.C. Sproul once put it, not just a minor misdemeanor, but cosmic treason. Hell is the punishment that fits the crime. God is just, and we will surely die. But there is an option. There is a way out. God is just, as we've seen, but he is also a God of mercy. And as we pointed out earlier, these, true, these two attributes of justice and mercy, they need not be in conflict with one another. As if there's some divine tug of war going on in God's heart. Sometimes we think of God that way, that he wants to punish sin and he's just, but there's this other part of him that wants to be merciful. And sometimes the, the just side wins out and sometimes the merciful side wins out. That's not an accurate vision of God. He is completely just and perfectly merciful. And these two attributes harmonize perfectly and completely within his divine being. And this is what explains for us the cross. At the cross, we see the justice of God with retribution and wrath and justice being poured out, but also mercy being provided for guilty sinners who deserve to die. Because God desires to save those whom he loves, he has provided for us the ransom payment, the payment that is required for our life. And because at the cross, Jesus dies in our place, God's requirement for retribution is satisfied. 
and his mercy is richly poured out on guilty sinners who believe in his gospel. Remember Romans 6.23 that starts off, the wages of sin is death. Well, there's a beautiful second half to that verse. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, a gift that he offers to you today, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death and life. Those are the two options. And life can only be found if the ransom payment is made. And listen, your bank account isn't big enough to pay it off. We owe our very life. Death must happen. There must be retribution. And only the cross can suffice. Restitution must also be made. And you and I can't pay it off, but Jesus can. In Christ Jesus, the ransom is paid. We are redeemed and his mercy is extended to us. And at the same time, his justice has been rendered. We do not go through life redeemed, forgiven, adopted into God's family because God has somehow swept our sin under the rug and made an exception to justice. There is no exception. All sin must be judged and punished. It's either paid for by us eternally in hell or it's paid for once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross is the means of God's mercy. It's the means of God's mercy. The only avenue by which we can escape the penalty that must fall upon sin. But I want you to consider very briefly as we wrap up. And this would be a good topic for discussion for those of you who are discussing these sermons in your small groups. The cross is not only the means for mercy, it's also a model for mercy. It's also the model for mercy. When we think about God's mercy towards us at the cross and we look to Jesus, what we find is that he's not only the means of mercy, he's also the model. He's also our example As those who have received such mercy, our attitude towards others is to be merciful. We often insist on justice. We insist that someone who harms us pay. We want retribution. We want restitution, and we demand it now. And we're typically more upset about other people's sin against us than we are about our sin against God. Isn't that convenient how that often works? But we're instructed biblically to leave, to leave judgment to God. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Yes, justice requires an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, even life for life. But that's God's job, not ours. It's God's job. Rather than insist on the justice that is due to us in terms of retaliation and restitution, we are supposed to look for opportunities to show mercy, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. And we do this in faith. It doesn't mean we're giving up on justice. It just means we're entrusting justice to God, trusting that he will do his job. And it's our job to show mercy. 1 Peter 2.23 points to the beautiful example Jesus set says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we look to the cross as the means of mercy for us, but we should also see they're a model of mercy. We do not dare redefine God's justice, 
but we also dare not take it into our own hands. We leave that to the Lord. So sin has consequences. Justice demands it. But thanks be to God. God has shown us so much mercy in Christ. Amen? Mercy that we do not deserve. Yet he's poured it out upon us. Let's worship him with gratitude. And let's allow him to work in us. To change our hearts so that we become more and more like Christ. More and more merciful to those who sin against us. Let's rest in his mercy towards us and seek to extend it to others. Let's pray together. Lord, I can't help but be aware that there may be some among us today who are in need of your mercy. Perhaps today they have recognized that their sin is ultimately against you and their sin deserves death, that there are no exceptions to justice, and they won't be the first. I pray that you would awaken them to the reality of where they stand before you. If they are apart from Christ, if they are outside of Christ, if they've not trusted in the gospel and surrendered their heart to you, then they still stand condemned and guilty today. I pray that they would hear these words, that sin has consequences, that the wages of sin is death. And I pray that they would recognize the great danger they are in. But Lord, I also ask that you would help them to hear this invitation this offer of mercy that all those who come to Christ will have their penalty paid. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died in our place as our substitute. That even though all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way, that the Father laid upon you, the Son, the Lamb, the iniquity of us all. It's by your stripes that we are healed. Jesus, we thank you for that sacrifice and I ask that there would be men, women, children who come to you today and embrace your offer of good news, this free gift of eternal life. We know it comes only through you. Lord, save sinners today. Convince them of your mercy. Draw them to yourself. And Lord, as we consider this truth, even as believers, I pray that we would be humbled this morning to see that your justice has been poured out at the cross and that our great and glorious privilege is to seek to reflect your merciful character by showing mercy to others. Lord, instruct us today. Help us walk in a manner that is worthy of you in a way that reflects your glory and goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.